Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 3. We are reading verses 1 through 17 today. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, this morning we come and we give thanks for your word. You have revealed yourself to us and it is only in your light that we see light. So we ask this morning that you grant us your spirit, that you send out your light and your truth that you give us understanding of all that you have given us in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. During my years as a pastor in Washington, D.C., a colleague and I established a certain rhythm on Thursday afternoons. We would take a jog. We would work our way down 8th Street Northeast that cuts right to the Capitol, and then we would make our way past the Capitol and then down the National Mall. This was through the World War II monument to the steps of the Lincoln where we would rest ourselves and then make the return voyage home. One of these afternoons, we were stopped on the mall. There was a very eager and anxious tourist there with his young wife. And he stopped us in somewhat distress and said, do you know where the mall is? <laughs> like the stores. It was one of those very difficult moments because it's actually hard to answer without absolutely embarrassing him. Here he was in the midst of the mall, a beautiful garden with monuments and history of our nation all surrounding us, and there we are standing in the midst of it, 
but he couldn't see it, he couldn't appreciate it, he couldn't identify it because he was expecting something else. And friends, this is one of the most frightful things about life because it also applies to what we do here at Christ Church. We can make the same mistake with the gospel, that we can miss Jesus even though he's all around us because we're expecting something else. And so this winter and this spring, we'll take time in the Gospel of Matthew simply to encounter this Jesus. Here in chapter 3, we meet the adult Jesus. At 30 years old, after reading the birth narratives through Advent, here we find him entering into his public ministry, and it's critical for us to consider who this is and what are we to expect. Because over this one who has been prepared for by John the Baptist, Suddenly we have the heavens opening. We have the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And we have this divine voice, the Father announcing that this is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased. And we want to know what to expect. We want to be able to see and we want to encounter this real and living Jesus. There's nothing more pressing and nothing more important for your life and for mine. There are, of course, many questions that emerge from these 17 verses. There has been more ink spilled on this particular chapter in Matthew than any other. But this morning, for the sake of simplicity, we'll consider three things about the salvation that is revealed here, what Jesus comes to bring. And so we'll look at three aspects of this salvation. We'll consider its nature, we'll consider its plan, and also its means. And so ahead of the Lord's table, let's look at each of those. First, the nature of our salvation. Now throughout the history of the world, we find a religious impulse in human beings. If you look across cultures and time, you see that humans have always been intensely interested in the religious question. That is figuring out, having this sense that there is an alienation between them and some type of God out there or gods. And so we have various rites and practices. We have gods and priests. We have sacrifices and prayers all throughout the history of all the cultures around the world. However, despite all of that diversity with the different gods and the different prayers and the different rites, there is this common factor that does unite them, a thread that runs through them all. Because at the heart of all of that religious enterprise, there is this sense of alienation from God. And there is the desire, the determination on the human side to bridge that gap. And so the history of religion is really a history of human striving in which we seek to obtain perhaps secret enlightenment that we gain some type of knowledge, or whether we keep some rules and regulations so that we can appease this God and earn our way into his presence. Or perhaps we keep him happy through some type of sacrifice offered, or we withdraw from the world around us that pollutes us into a quiet inner space. Whatever the case, each of them is some type of human striving in which we reach up into the heavens and we appease God and we find our way into his presence and communion with him. But all of this is extremely at odds with what is happening here 
in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's really extremely at odds with Christianity itself. Because what we find here is not an invitation to reach up into the heavens. What you find here is not another version of strive and try harder and do and make God accessible to yourself. That's not at the heart of Christianity at all. But what we find is just the opposite. In verses 13 through 17, as Jesus comes forward for baptism, what we see is that the son obediently comes, and he comes to John despite John's question. He says, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He's obeying God in heaven, his father. And then we see that the spirit descends. And then we see that the father announces that this is his beloved son. The three persons of the Trinity, all very active here. And this is not a record of what we are to do, of how we are to strive Rather, what it is is a record of what God is doing. It's a record of God descending, of God interrupting, of God entering into history to do something for you and to do something for me that we cannot do for ourselves. And friends, this is the nature of Christian salvation, that it's not about striving, about bringing heaven down yourself by reaching up and grabbing out. It's rather about receiving knowing that it is God who has spoken and brought down, that the heavens are open, that revelation has descended, that God is among us in his son Jesus. This is the nature of the salvation that we interact with. The second, we also see something of the plan of salvation. As Jesus, after the baptism, we hear the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's important to chase down this very short phrase because there are actually two references to the Old Testament. The first being the beloved son comes from our Psalm of the day, Psalm 2 and verse 7. This is my son. And so it's a statement of Jesus being the royal son of David. And this term beloved has been added here. And the term beloved is added for the simple reason it's not just affection, but in the Old Testament, the term beloved, and also into the New, that the term beloved always refers to some type of election, some type of appointment. And so Jesus has been appointed by God to a certain task. And so this is what's happening in the phrase, this is my beloved son. He's been appointed to be the the son of David who will rule over the nations. But secondly, we have this more enigmatic phrase, with whom I am well pleased. This is actually found in Isaiah 42 in, in verse 1. And in Isaiah 42, we have a chosen servant who is selected by God to bring forth justice to the nations. And there we read that it is in this servant that my soul delights or that I am well pleased, as it's translated into the Greek in the New Testament. It's here that we also, it's important to note that there is something interesting that happens in Matthew's use of this verse. He actually uses the past tense. And so whereas it's rendered in English, with whom I am well pleased, if we're going very literally, it would say with whom I was well pleased. Many people will ask, well, what's the point of the grammar lesson, Chuck? Why do you harass us with these things? But it's important because it's subtle. 
because Matthew is pointing us to something. Yes, this is an event in history. Jesus is baptized on this day. He's anointed by the Spirit descending from the heavens for this task of being royal David's royal son. But also there is something more mysterious being stated, that God was well pleased with this son, that there's something that's not just happening on this day in history, but rather this is referring to a decision and a determination outside of history. And Matthew is pointing to the eternal counsel of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, entering into covenant with one another to accomplish the redemption of human beings who have fallen into sin. This is the election of the Son to be a servant to all the nations of the earth. This is the beloved Son with whom God was well pleased, delighted in, in all eternity, and then chosen, choosing him, electing him for the task of being the redeemer of the world. Now, several years ago, I was interacting with a friend who was a very sincere Christian, and at one point in our friendship over 25 years ago, he was the most intense, theologically interested Christian I knew. I found him fascinating. He had read more than me. He had listened to more sermons. He knew more. I just was blown away by his knowledge. We had opportunity to have dinner some 25 years later. And it was interesting because in the discussions, we actually turned to this topic of the eternal counsels of God. I know this is your typical dinner conversation. And in the discussion, he actually turned to me and he said, you know, I just, I just have given up on all that conversation. I think it's useless. He said, I prefer to talk about this and, and that, and, you know, and there's just so much more else to consider that's really important. This stuff just isn't. Now, it's completely understandable, and it's very, very tempting just to take that route, to say, why do we bother with what was on God's mind outside of time? Why do we bother with thinking about eternal counsels? Isn't that just abstraction and fancy stuff for theologians to consider and to contemplate? That's perhaps maybe how some of you think of it. But I would also suggest to you that there's something more important to consider. That what God does reveal to us about those eternal counsels, even though we will not have privilege to fully understand it on this side, though we will not have his mind and though we cannot get inside all of it and we can easily enter into speculation, but what we are given, what has been revealed, we are to receive with gratitude. And so we don't want to come up short. And also what we have here is something profoundly important. We need to pay attention to things like this because what it reveals is that the whole enterprise of salvation, God's plan, is secure. That God entered into a covenant with his son with whom he was well pleased, whom he was delighted in. And he elected this son to be the one who would accomplish that salvation, the one who would bring it into effect, who would actualize it. And he actualizes it for you. He accomplishes it for you. It's safe. It's secure because it's in the one that God delights in. It's not been left to your hands. It's not been left to you to accomplishment. You're not to reach yourself up into the heavens and to find your way there. 
You're not left groping in the darkness. God has done it on your behalf. And friends, this is what we can appreciate about knowing something of that eternal counsel. That God plotted, God planned, God foreordained, God purposed, God determined. And in all that determination, it's secure and it's safe. And he was pleased to do that for you before the foundations of the world. It will not fail. And this is the plan of salvation revealed in this very subtle moment in the baptism of Jesus. But third, we also see the means of salvation. One of the larger questions that emerges out of this text is why was Jesus baptized? John the Baptist went out into the Judean wilderness. He was baptizing people. It was very intentional that he was in the wilderness because it was believed at that time in the first century that the return of the kingdom would come from the other side of the Jordan and Israel would be renewed. And so symbolically, he was calling the people to that new day and age and baptizing them. Jesus comes to him. He's identifying with the sinners of Israel, the sinful mass of humanity, and he requests baptism. And John asked the very natural question. It certainly is the question I would have asked. Why? <laughs> what, why, why would we do this? John knew and perceived who he was. Why would he baptize the mighty one? Jesus was identifying with us. But there's oftentimes a missed passage from the Old Testament here that I think explains what is happening. In Leviticus 8, in verse 6, Moses commands, or God commands through Moses, that the priest of Aaron, they were, this was the family that was to serve in the priesthood, that at their ordination, there was to be a washing. This was the first step of four at the ordination of priests who served in Israel. There was a washing. And friends, this is what we find going on here, I believe. That yes, Jesus comes to identify with us. He doesn't share in our sin, but he does identify full, fully with us in our humanity. But he comes and he's anointed here at this baptism to serve as priest. And in ancient Israel, it was known and commonly accepted that the high priest of Israel was a sin bearer one who had been anointed on their behalf. And that throughout each year, it was as if the high priest himself was accumulating the sins of the people. Because then on the day of the atonement, the priest would put the sins of the people on the scapegoat. And there was a vicarious then substitute sent out into the wilderness. And this is incredibly important for us to understand about this means of salvation. Because Jesus is that high priest. And he identifies with us. But in identifying with us, he is the one who bears our sins on our behalf. And this reference to Isaiah 42 is also important. Because it's the first of actually four songs in the book of Isaiah about a servant who would come. But when you reach the final song... In Isaiah 53, you learn how justice and how righteousness is going to flow to the nations. And the servant becomes a sacrifice. That he gives his life over for the multitude. That he gives himself for the many that the sinners might become righteous. 
And friends, this is the same story that's being told in densely biblical terms, that the means of salvation is through the Son himself, the priest who has come, who's been anointed by the Spirit, who is David's royal son. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. All of this planned in eternity past, plotted by God and determined by him for you. This is what he's done. The means of that salvation. And so we want to be very careful. We don't want to miss this. When we're talking about an unfolding story that begins in God's eternal counsel, outside of time, that's being unfolded now in the life of this Jesus, and now that we intersect with by the Spirit of God at work in us. This is the great canvas of the history of redemption, of all that God is doing, and it involves you. And so know that it's safe and secure. This plan has been determined by God in eternity on your behalf. Know that the means for you are there. And the one who fulfilled all righteousness was the sacrifice on your behalf. He is the one who's qualified to stand in your place. He alone can do what you can't. And that God has revealed himself. The nature of this salvation from first to last is of grace. It comes to you. It doesn't ask you to reach up into the heavens and figure it out. Friends, this is the Jesus that we are to see. Don't expect another one. Expect this one and you'll find it. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice and we celebrate as we are baptized into Jesus' name. We share in this announcement that we are your beloved children and in Jesus Christ, you are well pleased with us. Thank you for all that you have done, even the high and lofty things that stretch our minds and our knowledge. Thank you for the means of our salvation, the high priest who bears our sins. Turn us this year evermore to give thanks and to rejoice and to know this Jesus who comes on our behalf. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.